ESPN's Emmy award-winning 30 for 30 documentary film series presents the greatest mixtape ever. The story of how a series of streetball videos set to music in the 90s transformed basketball's place in the culture, defined the lives of the players who starred in those videos, and changed the game itself forever. Stream now on ESPN+. And listen to the Companion 30 for 30 podcast, a streetball mixtape exploring the essence of streetball through a collection of legendary stories. Listen now on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, The Low Post. Welcome to... The Low Post Podcast live from an undisclosed location in Boston, Massachusetts, where the NBA Finals will resume in about, I don't know, 54 hours or something like that. After the Golden State Warriors, behind some adjustments, the one that got the most high-profile praise was Draymond Green shifting on to Jalen Brown, and then a heap of Celtics turnovers, which I think a lot of us anticipated would be the bellwether of this series given what the Warriors do to you and the pain they inflict when you begin throwing the ball around the gym. It is 1-1. I don't even know what the final score of the game was because Ime Odoka took out his starters with like 11 minutes to go. We are in for a potentially long, hopefully competitive series. And, and it feels every series reaches a point where the teams have kind of it feels like everyone has arrived at the optimal strategy, the optimal lineups, the optimal means of attack. And at that point, it's just who executes better, who makes more shots, who is sort of sharper with the ball and all of that. Part of the reason this series is fun is it feels already like we are miles from that point. Like both teams are still experimenting with lineups, with play calls, with sets, very basic stuff, trying to figure out what works. And that's what's going to make these next two games in Boston so interesting. And there is no one I like talking hoops with better than a guy who makes us all smarter every time he opens his mouth, except when he talks about his neighbor's uh, ugly dog, Pickles. Coach Jeff Van Gundy, it's great to have you back in the saddle. How you doing, sir? Doing fine, thank you. Um, so here's where we stand. You ready for some some fun numbers here? Yeah. Through two games, the score is 215-208 Warriors plus seven. The efficiency numbers lean defense over offense. Not surprising, these have been the two best defensive teams in the league. Boston has made 36 threes. The Warriors have made 34 threes. Boston has made 26 free throws. The Warriors have made 25. Uh, Golden State is shooting a little better from two-point range, which we can talk about. Both teams are, are taking tons of threes. Offensive rebounding is about equal. Turnovers, a big, a big one. Boston has committed 32. Golden State just 26. 23 of Boston's 32 turnovers are Warriors steals. And as we saw in Game 2, that is death against the Warriors. But all of those statistics show you, A, a series that's kind of in the mud, a, a, a series that seems to be dictated by the defenses more than the offenses, and a series that through two games that were, you know, game two was a blowout, game one kind of felt like a blowout by the end because of how dramatically Boston smacked Golden State in the fourth quarter. But now in the aggregate, you zoom out, and it's like pretty even so far. So let's just start big picture. Who should feel better Coming to Boston 1-1, the Celtics or the Warriors? Or who do you feel better about? Well, I thought Boston was the better team coming into the series. And so I I, I would say they they should feel better. Although I'm not sure they played better than Golden State. And I think, you know, they have to make some individual adjustments uh, so that their best players play better. 
And then, you know, both teams have some things that they can do to try to take away, you know, the better, better players. Uh, in particular, I think Boston has to do a better job. Um, I would suspect Curry is going to run more and more pick and rolls if they're going to drop some. And I think they've got to in quarter one of game one and quarter three of game two. They just let him walk into some shots that, you know, are he's just too good at. So, you know, I just think both teams probably feel okay about where they're at. But I think Boston getting a road win and a miracle one at that with a tremendous fourth quarter has to feel good. Should the Celtics play four corners in the third quarter? And just just punt the ball with one on the shot clock. Just punt it into the stands every. I don't know. It's like it's the, the cast can change, the times can change. As long as Curry's on the floor playing the whole quarter, these third quarters are just. I, I it's to the point where it would be in my head if I were a player on the other team. Like I, that feels. I don't know. It's. I but I'm am I'm a weak minded individual. Far far less strong minded than typical NBA players. But these third quarters are just. It just it just goes on and you think the run has stopped. It just keeps going. Yeah, I mean the third quarter last night was as bad as the fourth quarter in the in game one. So um, very surprising. And I always, you know, players do such a great job of getting ready to play. They're warm. They're loose. They're ready to go at the tip. And I have found over time. And this was like a league-wide issue, I think. They're ill-prepared to start the second half. They come out, they drag out late from halftime. Uh, they used to at least do warm-up, like layup lines to get their blood flowing. That has gone, the, that has become extinct. Um, you know, you watch European teams come out for a halftime and warm up. They've got their conditioning coaches out there making them sprint, getting their heart rate up um, to try to approximate what happens to start the the game. But NBA players, they just don't do that. And so if I'm, if I'm Boston, if I'm a player there, I'm going to ask myself, what am I willing to do different to get a better result? You are generally anti halftime, are you not? Like you would just skip halftime if, if, if absolutely. If, even did you feel that way when you were a coach? Because I can feel like as a coach, you're like, no, I got to get in there. I got to show that clip. I got to tell that guy what to do. But even as a coach, did you feel that? No, this is all like for my own and fan benefit. But when you think about what actually happens at halftime, people talk about adjustments, and I think they're misunderstanding what really goes on you know you go in there you talk but it's basically a, a, a like a time to sort of like gather yourself as a player as a staff you make a couple points but I, I've never seen I really don't I, I don't believe really good coaches wait to halftime to adjust they do it immediately within the game if there's something that's giving their team problems. They're not waiting to halftime. I agree with you um, that, and I picked the Warriors in seven the first time I've picked against the Celtics the entire playoffs. And I admittedly was perhaps overweighting things like Game Six against Miami, the end of Game Seven against Miami. Um, I, maybe my my I'm underrating those teams. Like 
I, I, I'm still surprised that Milwaukee got them to seven without Middleton. Maybe I'm underrating the Bucks, But in any case, I picked Warriors in seven. But I agree with you that after these first two games, when I think cold calculated big picture, I feel a little better about Boston. Obviously, they got uh, the road win, which is which is the goal. I, f- I, I also feel like they have a little more lineup certainty with who they want to play and when and some easy pivots in that sense, whereas the Warriors are like, okay, here comes Gary Payton. Clay's getting a little less minutes. Pool's getting a little less minutes. Do we want to play Green and Looney together? Yeah, we're not sure. Let's squeeze in Porter here. Oh, here's a Bayalitza appearance. And a lot of that worked in game two, which we can talk about and, and why those lineups worked. But I want to start with the Curry point that you made. Because you were doing the game last night. You said, I wonder what the high number of, of pick and rolls that Curry has run in a game this season. Last night was not it. Uh, he actually ran more, according to Second Spectrum, in game one. Per possession, those games were about the same. 46 pick and rolls per 100 possessions, which would be about 10th, 11th, 12th most in any game this season. So a lot. For the series, the Warriors are scoring 1.2 about points per possession when a Curry pick and roll leads directly to a shot from him or somebody one pass away and 1.4 points per possession overall. So you include the ones that are two, three passes. Those are just simply not acceptable numbers for the Celtics. They will lose the series if the numbers stay that high. And so I put it to you. I've seen a lot of, well, they've got to adjust. They've got to blitz. They've got to do this. They've got to change who guards who. To me, to me, watching, and this is maybe like I, I'm trying to, uh, you know, I should try to sound smart and put my head, put myself in the heads of the coaches. To me, watching, a lot of this stuff is just like, just be better. Like, like I, I don't, I don't know that there's a big schematic to do to be made as much as like you're just dropping back too far. Guys are not ready for these drag screens and transition on too many times. You're just losing him in ways you can't afford to lose him. But maybe there is an adjustment I don't see. What What do you see when you just zero in on that on that action? Well, I think you're right in that it's more mistakes than a like a scheme that won't hold up. I think you know you may be able to drop back even against maybe like pool, maybe you feel better about pool shooting a pull up three off the dribble and you're in a deeper drop. Right. And, and you can debate, you know, whether that's right or wrong, but I don't think there's any debate that against Curry, you can't do that. Right. So the bigs of the Celtics have to be up now, whether that leads to a drop from being up and then you start dropping uh, whether that leads to switching and then as he starts dancing, coming over and double teaming to get the big out of a bad matchup or just letting your, your big do his, the best he can uh, against him, um, which I don't really like because um, I just think Curry's too good. Well, and if, if you know, if Rob, Will- Rob Williams is, again, not moving very well, that would be something I would bust out as a change of pace now and then. But Rob Williams doesn't look like he's he's up for that. He, in game one, he had one or two possessions where he was all right and forced a long two, which I, I can live with Steph taking a 20-footer off the dribble. But uh, last night, he did not look up for that. Yeah, and, and then I understand why you'd be reluctant to trap him because the Warriors historically four on three have been very good. You know, they – they get it to the big in the in the pocket, and they play very well from that. So, um, the but the one thing you have to try to eliminate 
is the mistakes that lead into the walk walk up threes. Just like off a pick and roll, no one's there. Um, Peyton set a couple good screens last night. Uh, we know Green's a good screener. Looney's a good screener. Like you just can't allow those. If you take those out, and now he has to start, you know, probing and and you know he's good enough to do that, but you just can't give him the comfort rhythm three, which he got. I thought too often in the two quarters, first quarter of game one, third quarter of game two. Well, I thought the biggest shot of the game was Tatum hit a contested three over someone to cut it to 68-62. And on the next Warriors possession, it was high screen and roll targeting Horford as, as the guy on the screener. The screen hit, and I think it was Peyton. And to your point, Peyton, good screener, nasty little screener. And Al was just like a foot behind the three-point line. And Steph was going to walk into one of these like wide-open threes. And it's just full. at that point, it's just full-on panic. It's like the defense, if they could make a noise, it would be a high-pitched scream. And Grant Williams sees this, runs off Wiggins on the wing, just leaves his guy, and just waves his arms and runs at Curry like a crazy person. Curry hits Wiggins. Wiggins extra pass to Otto Porter in the corner for a three to put them back up nine. If that's one of those games, it's like, I wish I could watch the alternate version where Boston gets a stop there and comes back with the ball down six and a chance to cut it to three or four. I thought that was the biggest shot of the game. But I, to me, I think I, I don't expect them to, to trap all of a sudden. I don't expect any goofy matchup machinations. They're already occasionally doing the thing where they'll try to yank Horford out of the pick and roll on the way up the Celtics are and put a smaller defender in there. Um, to your point, I mean, like, how many times we've been living this movie of Golden State killing you in four-on-threes for 10 years now? Like, I, I don't love that answer. Depending, though, on who is on the floor. And so I ask you this. The injection of Peyton last night was really interesting. And in particular, the lineup of Peyton, Curry, Wiggins, Porter, Green. Peyton, Curry, Wiggins, Porter, Green was, I believe, let me look it up here, uh, plus nine in eight minutes. And it was their second most used lineup of, of the game. Um, and I look at that lineup and I'm like, man, Steph Curry is incredible. Because Peyton shot the three well this year, but he's not a, 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 a low-volume three-point shooter. Wiggins is all right. Otto is a, is a low-volume, slow-release three-point shooter who's very accurate, and Draymond is a total non-shooter. What do you think of that lineup, and what did you think of Peyton? What did you think of Peyton's presence in general in the game? Well, I think Peyton did fine. I think sometimes we expect too much of guys who come back off a long layoff, and I've, I've always found that the first game is usually the better game. I'm really interested in watching Peyton or – it would have been Iguodala, too, in the second game uh, back. Um, but, I, again, I, I think your overall point about how great Curry is, because that's a very, very limited lineup. Oh, it's, and, it, it's incredible what he enables you to do. Yes, and I think sometimes we become such uh, nitpickers, right, like of, you know, a certain time, you know, like, like a small segment of time that we can forget the overall picture of just how great he is. And, you know, that they were able to play uh, to a positive with that lineup. 
They also had some lineups out on the on the floor that were super small. They're unathletic. This is by far of the teams that have reached the finals for the Warriors. This is by far their least talented team. I, I don't even think it's close. Well, you're you're referring to the second quarter. Curry, Poole, Peyton, Clay, Draymond lineup. I was like, oh my God, this is the solution they're going with. I mean, this is tiny. And think about it, Clay, you know, and everybody roots for Clay because Clay is so likable, but he's really contributed uh, very little in the first two games. I, I don't, I can't envision in my mind how they could win this series, let alone another game. If he can't find a level of doesn't have to be great, but super impactful and and good to really good. I, I think them being one one after the two games that he's played is a testament to, you know, their defense, Curry's greatness. Um, and, you know, and I, I just think that they have a, a good competitive instinct, but. They got to get more from Thompson for sure. Those those minutes that that little miniature lineup played, I say miniature. These guys are all giant human beings in the scheme of life. Were the only two minutes of the whole game that Poole, Curry, and Clay played together. The vaunted, so vaunted that like entire columns were written about what we should call it. The vaunted pool party, death pool, whatever you want to call it. Lineup zero minutes as Steve Kerr has just decided we can't survive defensively with that group on the floor. Clay has taken some horrible shots in this series. Just pull up like a pull-up 21-footer over Jalen Brown. Like, what are you doing? I did feel like once he made that three coming off a screen in the third quarter, I think he missed the rest of his shots, but I liked the rest of his shots. No, he he had one hesitation dribble and then a layup, I, I think, after that. I liked the rest of his shots, including he went for, like, the clay kill shot after an offensive rebound by Looney that was, like, contested pretty well but felt like a shot that Clay Thompson takes in rhythm, squared up, and that if I'm Steve Kerr, I want him taking that shot. That's the kill shot. That's the blow-off-the-roof shot. That's the you-got-to-call-a-timeout shot. I thought that he kind of eased back into looking like clay in terms of shot selection in a way that I'm kind of optimistic he's going to come to Boston and have at least a decent game because I agree with you if they get if they get this out of him they're not they're not beating Boston four times yeah and I think I think you know Mark Jackson made the point last night and astutely so that that's why I think Steve Kerr left clay in longer than any of the other starters uh, trying to get him going and I, I agree with you. I thought he had some good shots. Um, oh, I didn't even watch his shots in the fourth quarter. I'm going to admit that to you, Coach. I was already taking notes on, on what had happened earlier in the game. Yeah, no, he did. He had some good shots. And and I thought, you know, it's you're also worried about injury at that time. So it's the, the whole thing about coaching. You know, it's like it's not – none of these decisions are, you know, you know, cut and dried or black and white. But I just think – I agree with you. There was a guy I worked for way back, Gordon Chiesa, and he, he was a jazz assistant for a long time. And he coined a term shooting turnover. And I really think, you know, Clay, as good as he is, he has taken, as has some other guys um, in these playoffs, 
the skill level is so high now, but I think sometimes, you know, we talk about going from good to great shots. I think sometimes we are, as players, are content of taking mediocre shots um, early in the shot clock. And I think, you know, Thompson has to make sure that he gives himself the best chance he has to play well. Because if he takes high-quality shots, he's not going to slump for long. He'll, he'll get he'll, – he'll make and he'll get on a great run. But some of these shots, they're just not sustainable. Well, he played 30 minutes last night, which sounds like a lot, but six of them were garbage time. And that's, that's a cut in minutes for him. And the, and the presence of that other lineup with Peyton, Wiggins, Porter, Green – is Steve Kerr saying, "Hey, look, man, it's the finals. Like, I, I, I gotta, I gotta go with guys who are are working." And Peyton brings obviously defense. I mean, it's it's I I feel pressured by Gary Payton through a screen. He's so freaking through my computer screen or my TV screen. He's so freaking intense, and he's a vertical threat screening and diving. And he hit a three last night uh, from the corner. One thing I I liked about that lineup, and I'll bet you it's a reason that Steve Kerr likes it. Having not talked to him, I don't know. But with Peyton and Wiggins both on the floor, he's got guys that he trusts to guard Tatum and Brown who are not Draymond Green. And Draymond Green can go back to guarding whoever the center is on the floor for Boston, which puts him back in better position to be at the rim if something happens there. And I think the Draymond Jalen Brown thing, that was a sexy adjustment. It was one... A lot of us anticipated. I mentioned it on the podcast last week after game one. And it and it worked in the sense that Jalen Brown was 5 of 17 and Draymond set the tone. He forced tough shots. He's all up in his face. Boston also got a bunch of layups, particularly early in the game, one by Tatum and one by Smart and, and, and a few other good shot attempts that were good precisely because Draymond Green, especially when Looney's not on the floor, is 25 feet from the rim face guarding Jalen Brown. My only point is there's a cost-benefit analysis to putting Draymond Green on Jalen Brown. You don't just get the benefit. There is a cost of his rim protection is gone. And I think Steve Kerr playing that lineup with Peyton and Wiggins suggests to me like he sees that cost. And I'm interested to see how they they parcel Draymond's defensive assignments going forward because when he's not at the rim and they're small – I mean, they were super handsy. We can talk about their defense later. They forced a ton of steals. Everybody was active. Steph was sensational. I don't want him away from the basket every second he's on the floor. I want, I want, I, I want him veering closer to being the basket protector and a, not full time on the perimeter. Did you notice any of that? Well, I thought Boston point blank missed like five. You know the Warriors missed a ton of everyone missed layups. The basket, three, you know layups. Then the the uh, Celtics shot incredibly poorly from two, and so yeah, I think. Listen, if the first possession of the game, uh, Green was on Horford, he ties him up, jump ball. Then he's on Brown. Um, I've always felt he's much better as an off-ball defender than he is as an on-ball defender uh, in the disruption intelligence aspect of coordinating a defense. And, and so I would, I would suspect you're, you're right. Um, so much switching that goes on today in the game that actually initial matchups 
sometimes aren't as important as, you know, how you finish a possession, who's on who, and do you have enough size after you switch an action or two that you can finish off your possession with a defensive rebound. And I thought Wiggins last night exposed Boston a little bit with that. He was on that offensive glass, but he, he sort of missed a couple more. Oh, my God. I was like, it was like, Wiggins, Andrew, did you get to con- – you got your contacts in or something? I mean, these, yeah. these bunnies are just bouncing all over the place. Uh, and so I think there's a lot – you know, the individual defense I think is so important, you know, Golden State because, you know, you're playing against five out. There's deep dribble penetration. You're going to be in scramble mode. They got off to another great start from behind the three last night. The Celtics did. So both teams, to me, have to guard their guy, whoever they're on in a possession, well. I don't care who you're on because if if your defense gets broken down with the skill level of these teams – you got a lot of trouble. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes! Catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's there up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, watch out for them. You name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. Shame on you, by the way. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first Mother's Day or your fashionista mom who loves to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas, you can easily pick out something special to celebrate the both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to 100 bucks and under. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything pre-wrapped gifts, gifts for grandma. You can find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung Smart TV. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th. That's very soon. It'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for your mom easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. 18 turnovers for the Celtics. That's the game. You just can't give the Warriors turnovers. They turned into too many run-out threes. What did you see up close? Why did those turnovers happen? What can Boston do to adjust going forward? Because to me, that's the, stat of the, that's the stat of the series. I picked the Warriors because after the Miami series in particular, I was like, I don't know if I can trust these guys to hang on to the ball enough in high-leverage moments. And... This this is how the Warriors beat you. They're a high turnover forcing team. They run out, they get three. So what did you see in that regard uh, last night? I think it starts with Tatum. I think Tatum is so intent on drawing fouls that he's exposing the ball. He's trying to do the harden where he extends the ball some. I think he's too, right now, he's trying to draw too much contact. And with his size advantage, he should just finish over the top of these people. And if he gets a call, great. If he doesn't, fine. I'm going to finish. 
And I think Brown's issue is playing in too much traffic. His hand, like to me, he's better if it's a catch and shoot or it's a one dribble or two dribble max type of play. When he starts overhandling and then playing into more uh, traffic and more crowds, I think, you know, he can um, become a little bit high turnover. And then Marcus Smart, you know, they've got to, when he plays well offensively, they're hard to deal with. He makes shots. He doesn't turn it over. So I think those three guys have to make sure that they're playing to their strengths. They're making simple, sound plays. And if they do that, I think they'll be able to create good enough shots. And like you said, Zach, most importantly, not turn it over and ignite the Warriors' transition attack. I got to credit the Warriors' defense, too. Um, they are so smart. And it starts with Draymond, but it's everybody. They don't have a low IQ defender or even a medium IQ defender on their team. And no, you know you, what, Zach? I disagree. They're on the bench, though. Fair. Okay. I, I at this point in the year in the NBA Finals, when I, I, I mean of like the people who are playing. No, but that, I, isn't that good coaching though? Like, and, and, play your and best teams, players more minutes. Yeah, I yeah, could do but, that. No, but also too. This is, I think Steve Kerr is so unique. Throughout the year, everybody gets a chance. His evaluations are, you know, based on, I'm sure, practice, but since teams don't practice as much, he gives everybody a chance during the season. And then he really feels comfortable in knowing his team. And if you can't guard in a certain series, you're just not going to get a chance. You're not playing. Well, and we even even Clay, even Clay minutes reduced last night. But they're so good at if you beat the first line of defense, or even if you just sort of puncture the first line of defense, you're driving downhill a little bit. Even if you haven't beat your guy, they're so good at who's ever guarding the guy in the dunker spot steps up a little bit. Draymond is the best I've ever seen at this to show help. Okay, and then the guy guarding the corner shooter on the same side of the floor slides in to help at the dunker spot. And right there, in that moment, you freeze it. And it looks like, oh, Jason Tatum has all these open passes, like all the but if you really if you really dig in, they're zoning up so well and they're so good at we're not the prey, we're the predators. We're gonna sit in these in-between spaces, we're gonna stun at you, we're gonna eye fake at you, we're gonna have our arms wide. And we're going to make you indecisive. We're going to make you second-guess yourself. And a lot of those turnovers last night, the one that really pops to my head is Tatum throws this awful lollipop pass over to the right corner that Curry intercepts. A lot of those turnovers are Tatum thinks I've got the lob to Rob Williams or the drop-off to Horford. And then he sees somebody that, that freaks him out and throws that lollipop. And the Warriors are ready to dart back and steal it. Jalen Brown had one where he drove on Peyton. Draymond, I think, showed help off Horford, and he thought, oh, I've got the drop-off pass to Al Horford. Didn't see Otto Porter, who's fantastic at this, out of the corner of his eye, coming down from the top of the arc to steal that pass. Because Otto Porter is like, I'm not committing to that until you think I'm not committing to it. I'm not committing to it until the very last second. They're just so good at that, and they forced a lot of those steals with good activity. Boston's just got to be more careful and, you know... The interesting thing about the Warriors, and, and one of the reasons I think this series has a certain amount of mystery to it, 
I'm surprised and after watching the Mavericks series and how Luka went at Steph and Poole over and over again. I'm surprised how much the Warriors are switching Curry onto Tatum and, and being like, we know you think we're going to do what we did against Dallas and hedge out with Curry and put two on the ball. We're not going to do that against you. We're going to dare you to enter the ball to Jason Tatum, even with Poole on him. We're going to dare you, and, and Tatum settled for like a 19-footer or 18-footer last night on Poole. We're going to dare you to, to beat us one-on-one because, A, we trust our help, and, B, I bet if you ask them off the record over a beer, they would say, yeah, that's a bad matchup we're switching ourselves into, but we like the idea of slowing Boston down, making them play in the mud, making them play isolation basketball instead of sort of triggering their passing attack. And then we'll spring a hedge here and there. We'll spring a double team here and there. You just won't know where it's coming. That's a battle that I'm really interested to see where it goes on those Tatum smart pick and rolls. They were better at getting under the reverse, the smart Tatum pick and rolls, which they should just go under those. But I'm interested to see how that battle develops. What do you What do you think of their strategy are you because we saw the Mavs series it was just like 75 curry hedges every single game yeah I think again Curry's a more acceptable defender than most people probably think I think he's done a really good job of improvement uh over the course of his career he's probably not where the media tried to build him up to be this year that he's some first you know like all defensive team did we you know, do that? that? Was, I hope we didn't do that. We did. Yeah, there's some. Uh, well, they got some homers out there in the in the in the uh, Bay Area that have tried to hype that. But anyway, uh, you know, again, I think with Tatum, I like when he went to the Novitski spot, like at the nail against that, caught it there, quick move. Again, when he had a uh, pool on him and he just turned and shot over him, I like it. I I like when Tatum is balanced. I don't like when he's diving in to try to create contact. He is so big. He is so good. And I just think he's not a natural, like, he doesn't have that natural art of drawing fouls. You know, I don't think he's gotten the benefit of the doubt on a lot of these. But, like, to me, just go up. Like, he went by Curry in the second half off that. Like, he went, it was a second dribble. He got fouled. But, like, don't mess around. Don't try to dive in. Don't overthink it. Shoot over the top of the smaller guys. Get off two feet and play strong, jump strong, finish strong. And if you get an occasional one block, so be it. So be it. But don't – like, he missed great two-point shots last night. He he had some great opportunities, and he's got to put them down. He's got to put them down with strength. I think he also, I'm very interested, again, the sort of mystery of this series, the air of uncertainty. I'm very interested to see how, if he if he sees Peyton more, how comfortable he grows in that matchup. Because Peyton's strong and handsy and will take your lunch money. But size-wise, it's, it's no match. And Tatum hit a few jumpers right over his head last night where I was like, oh, he's starting to get a little comfortable in this matchup. I agree. It's like, just listen, you've got to give Peyton his due, right? So, or any of got who's smaller that does a good job. So don't put it down where they're at on the floor in front of them, trying to play with it or overhandle. Just rise up over the top. 
you are an elite, elite scorer who has a size advantage over everybody in the series. Like, use it, abuse them, and do it quickly and do it with strength. I just think sometimes he's like in this contact area trying to draw contact instead of just extend. Like, if you're going to extend and you're going up to shoot a layup, you had a couple last night that were beautiful, just like right at the rim. And then if you want to turn it over and throw it down, so be it. Or just shoot up over the top of these guys. Don't mess around with it. Yeah, and, and I think to your point, the floater has always been he, – now he's worked, Jason Tatum has, on that floater a lot and gotten a lot better at it. But that's always been the kind of weakest part of his shot game. And it's not – even he'll get into the lane, he kind of flails forward a little bit trying to draw contact and or make a lunging floater. It just doesn't – it doesn't look good. And I do think Boston – I would I'm I'm expecting them to come out in game three and say we're gonna run a little bit more of our set stuff because we just want to get moving. So like I I they ran a couple screen the screener plays last night to get mismatches or double screens with, with the two mismatches that they wanted to hunt. Their sideline pin downs, which which have been their bread and butter all season, the Warriors have kind of taken those away. they Wiggins is getting through those screens really well, but I, I it, there's taking them away and then going away from them too early. I think Boston needs to go back to those a little more just to get themselves, just to get themselves moving um, a little bit. By the way, can I, as a coach, can I ask you a really nerdy question? Yeah. What is Boston doing on these sideline out of bounds plays? Because it's it doesn't look like a zone, but they rearrange the matchups in really weird ways, and through two games it seems to have failed like every single time. Like all of a sudden Al Horford's guarding Curry on his sideline out of bounds. Curry hits a three. All of a sudden they just forget about Kevon Looney who catches the ball under the rim so wide open. He pump fakes and then dunks. Like what, what is the, I don't, it doesn't look like a zone. What is it? Like, Cause it's not working and they need to stop doing it. Yeah. I don't know. Really? I, I think sometimes, right? Like their one, two, two zone is fine. Um, you know, or they're, you know, like how they're trying to like, just sort of like, but they're a man to man team. That's what they do. Like they're, and they're good at it and they switch and that, and that, that makes them different. Um, I'm not sure they have to, they're probably trying to avoid certain matchups as far as like, you know what uh, NBA teams used to do a lot on side out of bounds as they would like pre-switch something. So, you know, so if I know I'm going to face a pin down, and I can get it aligned, I can, you know, I don't have to fight through it, and I can switch into the my preferred matchups. But but when teams now play so much more and better instinctually, I think you have to make sure that you know exactly so everybody's tied together. And I, I think the biggest thing that we haven't, like, um, discussed is how does – Ime Udoka and his staff want the Celtics to react to Green. Um, as Green tries to disrupt the game. And to me, you don't want to be caught in the middle. You either have to come to uh, the idea as a group that we're going to completely ignore Green, his antics and his disruptions, or, and I would do it if I thought this was the best track, or we're going to confront him every single time he runs his mouth. And so I would try to get the earliest double T of all time. 
could be at the jump ball. I would start Grant Williams maybe and have him just walk right over there and just start John, right? And then every time Green's running his mouth, turn and confront him. Because at some point, you have to – you can't be caught up where – I thought he had a great um, game last night in disrupting just the rhythm, the flow. You know, there was all these physical confrontations. Where limbs. Limbs are just hitting each other yeah. from all unexpected angles. And to me, you have to make a team decision. We're ignoring him or we're confronting him. And we've got to do it every time. We're either ignoring him every time or we're confronting him every time. Well, I, I was going to say at some point we should have the obligatory should Draymond Green have been ejected? Is he getting preferential treatment discussion? I, I honestly could not be less. I hate when we get to the biggest moments of the season, the moments we've all been waiting for. Basketball, the highest level of basketball. And this is such high level basketball because their defense, these defenses are so good. Even if it doesn't look pretty, the level of thinking and tinkering and adjusting is at the absolute apex of basketball. We've been waiting eight months for this. And then we're reduced to, like, should Draymond Green have gotten ejected? Who kicked who? Why did he try to pull Jalen Brown's pants down? Did he really try and pull Jalen Brown's pants down? Or was he just trying to pull himself up? And all of a sudden, you know, the TV segment is over and we haven't talked about the game. I just don't. I think the Celtics should say maybe he does get preferential treatment after he gets one technical. He can get away with anything short of bringing a foreign object. Remember in wrestling, you say, oh, he's got a foreign object in his tights. He can get away with anything short of that. Well, Jason Tatum's going to be able to get away with the same thing. They're not ejecting Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown from this game after one technical for some minor brouhaha either. Yes, but the difference being that Tatum and Brown are more mild-mannered. And they're not trying to gain an advantage with their antics and their disruption. And I actually thought the referees made the right call last night, not ejecting him. I don't, I want, to, I don't want to see him eject. If, if, if you got one tech, it's the finals. I, if, if you hit someone, I will eject you. Anything short of that, unless you say something – one of the 15 magic things you can't say to me, a ref, whoever, like offensive. I want you in the game. Well, I agree. But I can also see why teams, and this isn't just Draymond Green. There are certain guys, and Green said it after the game. He, I think he called it differential treatment. I don't know if it was deferential treatment or he's earned the – but he was saying he earned the right to get treated a little differently. As a coach or as a player, that selective enforcement would drive me and, and drives me as, an, as a guy covering the games. And it's not gr just green. It's just that I think the mild-mannered, polite guys are actually punished for their good behavior. And I, I don't like that. But I just think from a team standpoint, you have to – I thought he had an impact – on the mentality for both his team and for the Celtics. And I just think you got to come to grips with this is what he does best. And this is how we're going to respond. And you have to have buy-in from your team because you can't have sporadic confrontation because that favors him. To me, you have to have all the confrontations every single time he talks, he confronts, you just go at that. And you put the onus on the officials 
to try to have to diffuse it. And you actually try to exact, what is that called? Not exaggerate. Exacerbate. 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 I don't know how to spell that, but exacerbate the confrontations or, or you as a staff feel like, Hey, you know, the Celtics, I don't know if you ever see Horford do this, where he's got like a, he brings his hand to his head and he like points it like, and I see those guys doing that, like trying to, Hey, just focus in or you do that. And you do that all the time. But I think last night, you know, he ran into Grant Williams one time early in the game last night, he was coming up to set the screen and he just bull bulldogged Grant Williams. Yeah, you were on they, the commentary thinking, like, what, what exactly did Grant Williams do that? No. He stood he stood up and got tackled and he got a he foul? Got, he got tackled and it just started this whole thing where, and I just think they, like, they have to come to it. Like, it's one thing to talk about it prior to the series. This is what Draymond Green does. We've got to be ready for it. Now you've lived it for two games. How do you feel it's best to go about, like, when he – is disrupting the game. And I, I just think that's for, that that's forgetting the officials. How does your team best handle those situations? Let's end with a little bit more basketball talk. Um, I personally think after, after doing really well in game one to get to their best lineup, which I think is smart, white Tatum, Brown, Horford, I thought Ime Odoka went too too long before he got to that lineup in game two. I wonder how quickly we're going to see or if we see Udoka start that lineup, start Grant Williams for Robert Williams. We've seen him do it in the second halves of a couple of games against Miami. I, although that lineup was outscored last night, and I think it was minus eight, eight minutes or something like that, I think they look the best they look with that group on the floor. Um I think their their spacing is obviously better. I'm interested in that. It just sort of if, if they get to that sooner, it, it and and it gets like I think the Warriors are just beginning to learn how to exploit. Like if you're going to put Rob Williams on Andrew Wiggins, there's stuff we can do there that we've only barely dabbled in. Run him off some screens. They forced some switches. Got a back cut basket out of it last night. It takes that little game away, especially if Rob is is you know it all depends on how kind of mobile he is. I, I wonder if we're going to see sort of a more aggressive move in, in that direction and, uh, and less, less two big lineups, less Tice. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I think from, from Boston's standpoint, there's no doubt that Robert Williams is hampered and Grant Williams has had no impact so far. And I think they need one of the two Williams to come through and be able to play more and play better because I don't know necessarily if you want to be four perimeters to start the game with Al Horford, but I do like the idea of uh, Grant Williams and Horford as a starting group. I'll be interested. I, I would suspect if, Robert Williams is going to play. He he will continue to start, but I you see his minutes. You know they're they're cratering. And think about it. Last night they started great. I mean they were yeah. You know it wasn't their start. Uh, they got off to a terrific start. Jalen Brown got off to a terrific start. So I think sometimes, you know, when you lose big like they lost in the third quarter, 
that we can uh, think like as outsiders, like what do they have to do? And I think maybe on the inside, the Celtics could be like, no, we just have to play better. R8 or R8, maybe Tice doesn't play. And so we don't throw in the fourth big guy and we just stay with the three bigs of, you know, Horford, Williams and Williams. That sounds like a law firm. And, um, you know, just stay with that and then, you know, mix those eight. So I would suspect if Rob Williams can play, he'll he'll start. Wouldn't shock me if we saw Grant Williams at the five here and there when that, just maybe a two minutes or three minutes of it maybe a little more if it works we, is, which is a look they haven't used much but I think there's a place for it in this series the harder they lean um into small ball it's gonna be it just feels like we've scratched the surface through two games and especially given the lineup juggling that Steve Kerr did to great to great success last night it feels like there's still a loud a lot of ground to cover before we get to the sort of end game of this series, which is, which is exciting. And these are two, these are two great teams. I mean, you, you're right that this is the least talented Warriors team that's made the finals. Three of those teams had Kevin Durant, Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, and Draymond Green. So it's not a fair fight, even though Durant was injured for the last finals. And the first one was the first one when they're all younger and athletic and more athletic and happy to be there and all that. But they're still a hell of a team with just a system unlike anything else and high IQ across the board. And the Celtics have been the best team in the NBA for almost 60 games now. It's it's It should be a great last between three and five, hopefully five games. And you will be there chronicling all of them. It's great to have you back. Jeff Van Gundy will probably bother you again before the finals are over, but thank you for lending us your time. Enjoy uh, a couple of days of non-game action, and we'll see you at the arena. All right. Take care, Zach. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. With a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. That's onepeloton.com. I went. All right, let's bring in Tim Band McMahon for a quick non-finals aside about the Utah Jazz, who are not in the NBA Finals and uh, have repeatedly not been in the NBA Finals, the result of which is that Quinn Snyder resigned as coach after a long, protracted, wrenching negotiation. Tim McMahon, you know this team better than anyone. Woj reported that Donovan Mitchell is, I think, both unsettled and unnerved. Not just one, but both unsettled mm-hmm. and unnerved about the proceedings with Quinn Snyder. What happens next, uh, and why did why did Coach... I mean, we, we both have, a, I think, a good relationship with Quinn Snyder. This didn't catch either of us by surprise. But what happens now for an organization that, as we have been discussing for a year, you and I on this podcast, has, faced, uh, ha- has been facing this sort of point of potential turmoil for a while now? 
Yeah, and uh, Donovan Mitchell apparently was surprised by this, which frankly surprises me. I know he has an internet connection. I follow him on Instagram and Twitter. Um, so I'm not quite sure how this caught him off guard. But, you know, I think that your next question, your next logical question, other than who will they hire, uh, and both Ryan Smith and Danny Ainge made it clear that they're in no hurry to make that decision. It will be a thorough a coaching search. They don't feel like they need to get it done before free agency or anything like that. Um, but the question is, how much say will Donovan Mitchell have in this hire? And I think the the simple answer to that might be, how much say does he want to have in the hire? Um, because look, if if he gets to, I'm not saying make the hire, but really have heavy influence in it, then there's a... You know, I think by logical extension there, it's a commitment on his part. If he just says, listen, I don't want to be involved. You guys do what's best for the franchise. You know, then he, I, I, I think, can, can have a little bit more cover if he decides to say, listen, there's been a lot of change here. Quinn was the, the, you know, the only coach I ever envisioned myself playing for. I, I think it's probably time for us to part ways as well. Look, Zach, let's just be straight up. We all expect it to get to that point at some time in the not-too-distant future. The question is, is that this summer? Is that at the trade deadline? Is it next summer? Um, and so, again, I, I think just how much, say, Donovan Mitchell decides that he wants to have uh, will we'll speak loudly. And I tell you, if, if he... I could see a situation developing to where if Donovan Mitchell and Danny Ainge aren't exactly on the same page about who the next head coach could be, that would be very interesting, very it fascinating. It would because Danny Ainge is not going to be afraid to do anything. You and I have done like four podcasts already mm. on potential Rudy Gobert landing spots and potential Donovan Mitchell landing spots. Please go listen to those podcasts because all the Rudy Gobert fake trades that you have heard about in the last two weeks, I guarantee you, have been pitched on this podcast by both of us over various times. From Atlanta to Charlotte to Toronto to Brooklyn to Chicago to Dallas and on and on and on. We've all done the Gobert trades. The Mitchell trade is the nuclear bomb mm-hmm. that Utah does not want to set off. And I think... Through all of this, through all of the, and it's been turmoil, like jazz fans want to put their head in the sand and not acknowledge it. The ownership changed. The general managers changed. Now the coaches changed. The training staff changed. Coincidentally, after a flare up with Donovan Mitchell ahead of game one of the playoffs last year, that was not a coincidence. Mm -hmm. There's been real, actual turmoil, turnover on the coaching staff behind the bench, the whole thing. Um, Through it all, you have heard, I think, and I I definitely have heard. Maybe you haven't heard. I'll, I'll just put it to you. The one certainty within the Jazz was that Donovan Mitchell, through it all, really, really loved playing for Quinn Snyder. Yes. That they had a great relationship. To my to my knowledge, that never changed, and mm-hmm. never did that did not play any role in this decision by Quinn Snyder to resign. There was no sudden like, oh, I feel like there's some some breakage in the relationship between Donovan and Quinn. I think that remains a very strong relationship. Yeah, no, Quinn had a great relationship with Donovan. He also had a great relationship with Rudy Gobert. We can go on down the roster, but he had great relationships with both franchise cornerstones, despite the fact that that the dynamic between those two players isn't always 
just, uh, you know, butterflies and daffodils or, but I think Rudy's quote to me was butterflies and sunshine, whatever it was. It, it wasn't always butterflies were in it and butterflies, <laughs> Tim, Tim, let me tell you something. My daughter's class just grew caterpillars into cocoons, into butterflies, mm. delightful creatures. They really truly are <laughs> delightful creatures. Well, they're, they're, they weren't always fluttering between Rudy uh, and and Donovan. Um, I do think that Quinn was just worn down and you know there was a lot of change. And look, think about the last three years for the Jazz, going back to ground zero for COVID, you know, or patient zero for COVID, and then all the friction that got exposed and created uh, by that whole situation between his two best players. And then you know, a change in ownership, which Ryan Smith is a very different, very different style of owner than the Miller family. The Miller family is very hands-off. Ryan Smith is very involved. Not that one or the other is better, but it's certainly a change. The, going from Dennis Lindsay to Danny Ainge as the lead uh, decision maker in the front office. And again, you know, not that one's better than the other, but there's just so much change. But the one kind of constant is the Jazz just couldn't get over the hump. And Quinn has said it pretty clearly that he just didn't feel like he was going to be able to get them over the hump. And so he felt like after eight years, a a good run, not, you know, not as good as, not as great as he hoped it would be, but after a very good run, he just felt like it was time to, to, to part ways. And, you know, he will coach in the NBA again, for sure. Whether that will be next season or you know the the following year, that remains to be seen, and uh, you know we'll see if there's an opportunity that presents itself for him, and then we'll see if the Jazz are willing to uh, let Quinn go when they can block him for the remaining year on his contract. From that's coaching. what I was that's what I was going to ask you about. So your reporting, and from what I've heard, has been he, he's under contract for next season, has the option, his option for 23-24, which mm-hmm. they tried to get him to opt into, and he said, I'm not going to – as part of an extension, perhaps, and he said, no, I'm, right. not, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. So the two the two natural questions are, is he getting paid or is he literally walking away from what must be a salary that I'm guessing is between 5 and $7 million a year for next season? And B, do they have as a result essentially like a no-compete blockage with with Quinn Snyder that they would have to lift for him to take a job next season. It sounds like the answer to B is yes, they do. Yeah, I don't know the answer to A. I do know the answer to B is it is within the Jazz's rights to block Quinn from coaching in the 2022-23 season. Now, I don't know if they would enforce that. Obviously, you know, with Quinn sitting up there with Ryan Smith and Danny Ainge today, it was an amicable uh, departure. They're all saying nice things about each other. Uh, you know, the other thing is, I don't know if there's a situation that would present itself for next season that that Quinn would want to jump on. I do think that uh, the 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 idea, although you know, Quinn's such a maniac, I don't know how he doesn't just grind. But the idea of spending time with his family and relaxing, and as he mentioned, being there for Halloween with the kids and and all that sort of thing. I think there is some appeal to that. Okay, so first of all, what is Quinn Snyder trying to do? What is he trying to do by going all in on Halloween content in his farewell press conference? Because, look, Qu- first of all, I voted Quinn Snyder Coach of the Year once, and, and he's been in my – I think he's been in my top three at least. In a t- I don't know. Quinn Snyder is a great coach. I just want to preface what I'm about to say by saying that. <laughs> Quinn Snyder is a great coach. He also – 
is the most memeable face-making oh, yes. NBA. The, the faces are just incredible. The elasticity, the intensity of the eyes, the hair that can get kind of out of place. He dabbled in a beard, like a Hollywood Hogan-style beard. It's the fact that hear... he never sleeps, and you can tell he's got bags under his eyes and, at all And time. so he's, he's bringing up, I'm going to be with my daughter for Halloween. Then he's pressed. You watch the whole thing. Then he's pressed further on, well, Halloween means you wouldn't be coaching next season because the season would be over. It would be well underway by then. What are you going to be for? Are you just trying to set the internet up for like, here's Quinn Snyder as the Joker. Here's Quinn Snyder as uh, the Green Goblin. Here's Quinn Snyder. As, as like, the what Sons are you of Anarchy. As the Sons of Anarchy. What lead. are you trying to do to me? <laughs> like, how am I supposed to not trivialize your NBA coaching career by talking about Halloween? It's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's Quinn Snyder's fault. I'm sorry that your face is just an incredible face. It's an incredibly expressive face. And what Quinn was trying to do was not rule out coaching next year but not really make that a subject of conversation. And then he was trying to awkwardly dance around it. I, I did find it interesting that Danny Ainge made sure to interject and say, we desperately wanted to keep him, which is both factual and interesting that he felt the need to mention that on the record for everybody here. I do think his stated reason for resigning from the Utah Jazz, that he just felt it was time for both him and the team is 100% true. Yeah. I don't think there's some ulterior story here about how he's angling for this job or something happened with Mitchell. I I do think that he felt it's just time for a change. We've climbed the mountain enough times, got knocked down enough times, something's not working. I'm at a point in my life where maybe I want to do something different. It's just time. I think that's honest. I don't think it hurts that the potentiality of the Spurs job whether right. it's this summer, and I still think if gun to my head, Pop would, is coming back for one more year. Maybe not. I don't know. Uh, or next summer or whenever. I, I don't think it hurts that that potentiality is out there because I, I, I believe – look, they're all the Spurs tree revere the Spurs. Mm -hmm. Some would, I think, resist the, the chance to be the guy who follows the guy. Some would embrace it because of, of what they – the loyalty and pull they feel to that organization. I think Quinn Snyder is in the latter camp in terms of, I think he would embrace it, but I don't yeah. think that's why he resigned from the Jazz. No, no, I don't think it's why he resigned. I do think that the Spurs job is why Quinn is not necessarily wanting to rule out coaching next year. You know, having said that, let me just emphasize as strongly as possible that in no way, shape, or form is Quinn trying to nudge Pop out, obviously. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no, no one should think anything. These people revere Pop yes. to such a degree that if Pop said to Quinn Snyder, I'd never hire you. I'm coaching for 10 more years. Quinn Snyder would be like, you're amazing, Pop. I love you. Can I be the video guy? Can I, I do I something? I mean, listen, the, Pop set the all-time wins record against the Jazz and what was a really bad loss for the Jazz. And Quinn, in that moment, was ecstatic for Pop, who you know is is obviously one of his mentors, you know, ha having said that, Pop will make his decision whenever he whenever he decides that that he's ready to make his decision. If he does decide to retire, that is the one job right now that I could see Quinn being interested in for next season. I say right now because you know you don't know what might maybe somebody decides 
uh, oh, maybe Quinn's available. We let's uh, let's see if we can get him, and something that we don't think would be available would be. Um, but like, he's not going to be a late entry into the Charlotte uh, situation. Um, there's not another opening right now. And again, I, I, I think the most likely scenario is Quinn sits out a year, and he's going to be positioned to be probably the top name, uh, um, whatever opening there is for you know for whatever opening there is. And Quinn will come back into the NBA uh, as a head coach, making money that is near the top uh, of the scale for head coaches. What if he dresses as Pop for Halloween? How would you even dress as Pop? You got to get the George Carlin kind of white hair. You got you know some some khakis, a scraggly beard, general angry demeanor. I mean, like it's. I'm just you know, I can't stop thinking about Halloween. on the Mitchell front, you know, look, I once the playoffs start, I'm just all in on the basketball part of it, and I'm all in on the finals, and I and I try to sort of leave the offseason for the offseason. Obviously, I talk to people, I get texts, I get calls, whatever, but um, I, I haven't been hammering the ground on the Mitchell situation. It's been kind of quiet, I think. The one thing that I do think has changed is Miami is going to try to do stuff in the offseason. They made that subtle little trade with Oklahoma City at the deadline to punt their draft obligation to the Thunder for two years, specifically to enable them to trade more picks now. Duncan Robinson and his $20 million salary fell all the way out the rotation. Extension-eligible Tyler Hero kind of had a meh playoffs. And then Riley had an interesting comment when asked about Hero today. I missed it. What did he say? I must have missed something else. Uh I'm gonna. I'm not quoting directly, but basically he said, you know, if if you want to win and you want to be a starter, you have to be a two-way player. Ooh, well, I mean, it's no secret that Tyler Hero is, struggles on defense. But look, um, <laughs> by the way, so does Donovan Mitchell. <laughs> yes, that's true. And the Utah or the Dallas Mavericks rather will happily share some memories of their first-round playoff series this year. Um, Riley also said at age 77, he could do more pushups than you. I don't know if he was talking about you, the media in general, or you, just Tim Reynolds, who was the, the reporter from the AP who I loved him. I saw him tweeting that. How, how many pushups can you do in a row, Zach? I was, I, I don't know because when I do pushups, I just, I, I hate pushups. So I just do like 25 and I stop and that's not okay. very many. I realize, but I could go on for much longer than that, but I don't want to. And that's the only, that's the set that I want to do. So I stop. I would, I would, I would give myself a sixty percent chance of doing more push-ups than Pat Riley. What about you? Well, I, but I, there's no way I would look as good doing push-ups as Pat Riley, who looks amazing doing literally anything from sitting to standing to eating the hair, the suits, the whole thing. I mean, I would be struggling and grunting. Pat Riley would probably be just looking smooth as silk. I, I have a sixty push-up minimum before I get in the shower. It's kind of my way of making sure that I get at least a little bit of exercise on a daily basis. So, Oh, you got him. You got him. I don't know, man, Pat, like he was, I mean, drafted by the Dallas Cowboys played in the NBA. I know know? he's he's from Schenectady from Schenectady and he was tough as growing up. You know, Pat might, he might even do those push-ups that look real cool. I can't do these where, you, you know, you push up and then you clap and you push up and then you clap. I mean, the Heat are definitely in, like, the will train like Rocky before the Drago <laughs> fight um, kind of camp of— Mixing of, some of those fingertip push-ups, boy. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't you, know what we're talking doing, about. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, it would not surprise me if the Heat had an internal meeting at some point where they're like, okay, what can we get for Hero, Duncan, two first-round picks? Should we call Utah about that? To me, because they're hungry. Pat said it today. Give me an upgrade. Yeah. He had some quote like, give me an upgrade. I'll take it as long as he fits here. Like, it's no secret that the Heat go big, big star hunting all the time. And the way the playoffs unfolded and the financial realities that are coming – I think that's changed the Donovan Mitchell landscape. If it ever, it's a, this is all up to Donovan Mitchell. If he says I want to play for the Jazz, there is no landscape. But if he, if there's right. uncertainty, I think that part of it has changed a little bit. Yeah, option A, B, C, D, E for the Jazz is continue building around Donovan Mitchell. You know, at some point, I anticipate that Donovan will put pressure on the Jazz to, you know, find an alternative. Um, again, I don't know if that's this summer deadline, next summer. I don't know when that will be. Um, certainly Donovan will have less leverage in terms of where, what the trade destination, the trade partner would be if he would do it now when he'd have three guaranteed years left on that contract. Um, I think it's probably safe to say that the Knicks have not made it appealing to the Jazz to do business with them uh, with, with some of the I mean, let's just be honest. With Worldwide West showing up and sitting front row for the playoff opener, uh, after all the other stuff that they've done in terms of creating uh, rumors, so on and so forth, Miami's definitely interesting. I think Donovan would absolutely be excited about that. He trains in Miami during the off season. Um, you know, obviously, he would love to play for a contender. There's no question that the Heat fit in that category. I, Duncan Robinson is not a positive trade asset at this time. It's it's a reach. It's it's a you gotta love Tyler Hero. It's a you you gotta see yeah. stardom in Tyler Hero. Yeah, and the Heat are still limited in terms of what picks they, how many picks they can offer. Um, but I would put that. In, and but the other thing is, if Donovan wants to decides to push that issue this summer, I think what the Jazz do is open it up to all bidders. Kings, you want to put it off on the table. Hey, Pacers. You always open it up to the Kings. Always. Yeah. And, and you know, at that, Donovan Mitchell's happiness is their concern. One of their, you can argue their primary concern. Right up until the point where they realize, hey, he's leaving. So, at that point, his happiness ain't your problem. Tim McMahon, you got to go. I've got to go Google some Halloween costumes for next year. I got to start getting prepared. <laughs> Quinn Snyder's ahead of me. I got to start focusing on what's really important, which is Halloween. Uh, Tim McMahon, your work is second to none on all these beats. Thanks for joining us, and I'll see you down the road. I, I was a safari guide this last year, just in case you were wondering. I wasn't, but thank you for the intel. I was, I was one of 9,000 Ted Lassos. <laughs> all right. Appreciate you, brother. <laughs>